Hello and welcome to Scottish Independence Podcasts. I'm Fiona McGregor and this week with my co-host Marlene Halliday, we're going to be finding out everything we ever wanted to know about ferries. You know, you get so fed up of some of these really important issues that we're not actually able to discuss because they're immediately weaponized by Westminster, the Tories, and it becomes just dog whistle politics, doesn't it? It does, yes, it does. Mm. There's a few examples of those, isn't there? There is. Anyway, we're about to be talking about one of them, aren't we, in this, this month's episode? Ah, but ferries. Ah, but ferries. <laughs> ah, but ferries. It's, you need, definitely need the tone of voice. It's become a kind of meme for uh, everything that's wrong with Scotland. Ah, but ferries. Anyway... We think that with the discussion that we have in this programme, we, we can do something to dispel the kind of, you know, divisiveness, wedge issue kind of politicking that goes on around it and actually talk to a few people who know a lot about ferries and also know what it's like to be living somewhere where you're dependent on ferries. Well, we've got um, several guests today. We've got two from... Yes, Orkney, Georgie Sanderson and Mike Robertson, and we're very pleased that they were able to join us. And we also have another guest that we've had on the show before. Always delighted to see Professor Alf Baird. So he's a former professor of uh, maritime business at uh, Edinburgh Napier University. And as it happens, he also lives in Orkney. So let's start with Mike and Georgie. We asked them, what's it like, depending on ferries, for your day-to-day life? You want to go down to Kirkwall. I mean, what's the choice like? How reliable is it? What's it actually like? There's a problem in as much as we spend two and a half months this time of year on what they call the refit timetable, which means we've only got two ships instead of three. So obviously the service is quite a bit reduced. Well, they have extra sailings in the summertime for mainly the tourist trade, I suppose, because they need extra sailings for extra capacity, because the ships are probably too small. The 30-year-old, the thinking that went into them will be older than that. I've no idea when they start planning these things. But even even in the North Isles, we've got the islands that are further away and um, the four islands served by two ferries that are quite close to the mainland. The mainland as in Orkney mainland. And then in the rest of the North Isles, we've got uh, four bigger islands that are served by these three ferries. But we've also got two smaller islands. Uh, one right north and one right northwest that have a much reduced service. Uh, North Ronaldsey, for example, it's lucky if it gets a boat, one boat per week. Wow. Extremely lucky in the summertime. They do have a slightly enhanced air service provided by Islander planes. That's interesting. You, you mentioned North Ronaldsey because the one time I was up being on, on Orkney, which last June, it was just spectacularly sun and blue skies the whole time mm-hmm, we were mm-hmm. there. And myself and my friend I was, I was up with, we had this fantastic day out on by catching the ferry at Kirkwall mid-morning, which then steamed all the way up to North Ronaldsey. We're just, you know, sitting on the outside of the boat, kind yeah. of looking yeah. around going, God, it's so beautiful, isn't it? And the captains say, oh, if I see any whales, I'll let you all know. And yeah. It was just brilliant. But then we get to North Ronaldsey and there was a few vehicles had to get taken off onto the mm. island and then some that were going back on the boat and it's all done with a derrick and being hoisted out of the boat and yeah, onto the yeah. and i'm going oh god they don't just roll off and roll on then so you know so no. from the point of view of a tourist it was fantastic but from the point of view of living there i thought hmm, yeah not so uh, good 
So, Mike, you're on Orkney mainland. What's your kind of feeling about how things stand at the moment? Well, I think the, the, the thing that surprised me, I came back here, having lived in Shetland for about 30 years, I came back here actually about almost 20 years ago. It was the days of the Arcadia, which was twice a week. <laughs> Everything was pulled on and off when I left. And uh, when I came back, there were these new boats, and I thought, it was amazing that they've got all these wonderful new boats doing this link, but how enough did they get past the uh, equalities uh, people and the disability rules yeah. and everything? Because yeah. here was a disabled toilet up a flight of steps. Yeah. Just, you know, and to get to it, you've got to climb over a scuttle. My father in his uh, latter years, he wasn't too, too mobile. And when he came into town, they had to get a special dispensation for him to sit in the car for the course of the journey. And it was purely because the boats just weren't up to the standard that everybody else was expecting. What you were saying before, access and toilets, they've got a problem, you see, because they've got these other islands, um, to say, like North Ronaldsea and Papi, Mm -hmm. they have side doors on the vehicle deck. That's right, yeah. And the water can wash all the way across, and that's why it's it wouldn't have been seem like a good idea to have, say, a toilet, for example, on the car deck level, and that's why they're all up by two yeah. two steps. It's because of the levels of the historical piers that they had to deal with when they first came into service. Yeah. Uh, because when they first came into service, they maybe were one link span operating, but the rest weren't. So when they first came to West Street, they were at the old pier, and um, I remember a small lorry, like a six-wheeler, had to be lifted ashore in two parts. They'd lift the platform off, and then the chassis engine cab bit, and then reassemble them on the pier because the the crane uh, wasn't big enough to lift the whole damn thing at one go. So everything at that time was still being lifted uh, until the, the various link spans came into operation as they got completed. But the trouble with the link spans is they're the same age as the ferries. So they're mechanical. Yeah, piers appear, they think, and it'll stand there forever. But actually, if you look closely at these piers, um, the metal is corroding at a fantastic rate, or has corroded. They now have better anodes on it, I believe, so they might uh, they might last for another 20 years. But at some stage, they're going to have to redo all the sides of them, like repile them. And the leg yeah. spans are mechanical structures, so they're also 30 years old. Okay, they've probably replaced rams and stuff, but at some stage, they'll have to be replaced as well. But um, my experience really with them mostly has been visiting my parents in Sandy. And that was a journey from Kirkwall out to Sandy. We'd go out in the morning and, and come back in the evening. Hopefully the boat was running. Uh, but more recently, I've noticed there are far more breakdowns. They are saying that the boats now are well beyond their use-by yeah. date. They can't get spares anymore. And quite often they have to get spares manufactured specially to repair uh, engines which break down regularly and, and so on. But as somebody I know who has, has campaigned quite a lot for getting um, some improved ferries and has hit a brick wall with the council, because I think there's a, it, it's almost a point of principle that they've got, where uh, sometime in the past they were promised by the Scottish government that they would fully fund the ferries, but this has never materialised. And they, uh, there is a reserve fund in Orkney which tends to make people think, well, you've got money, why should you have any more? Yeah. And uh, so the, the, this, this money is not to be used for ferries, but to be used for other rainy day projects. So that's, and, that's um, a reserve fund that came from ordinary folk negotiating with the oil companies, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. 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 and it, it's had to be used to support uh, 
general operations for quite some time, I think, there is a reluctance of the OIC to spend on on ferries. And I think as a naive uh, viewer from the outside, it seems to me a little unfair that the people in the North Isles have to suffer for a point of principle than the, in the OIC, but perhaps I'm looking at it too simply. There's not really a lot we can do with the external ferries except moan. Well, there's not much we can do with any of them except moan, because the main problem is where the money comes from. And so long as that is tied up at Westminster, <laughs> I hate to say it, we're probably wasting our time. We can blame the shipping company. Uh, we can blame their uh, immediate superiors, Orkney Islands Council. We can blame the, West, the, the Holyrood government. But um, none of them provide the money. And until independence, I can't see us being able to do a lot. I don't know how we get the money out of them because it, there's nowhere else for it to come from because everything is so where we spent the last 10 years, the austerity, and then all the other calamities. So, you know, if Liam Byrne was choking when he said there was no money in 2010, um, on the current system, there's definitely no money now. There's definitely because, no money. Uh, no. Nobody will admit that they can just make the stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the ferries could be sorted. <laughs> Say the money was there, what, what would, how would you spend it? Yeah, we need newer ships, yeah, and yeah. we possibly need more of them. Maybe they don't have to be all the same. What Jordy said about the money uh, is true. That uh, it, it, there is a lot of money required to replace these ferries. You're into the certainly into a hundred million or more. Uh, the council would have, you believe, it's over four hundred million that's needed. That there are ways that this could be reduced, yeah. um, but these aren't being explored. Again, there is a a fashion, if you like, a fad amongst both the Scottish Government and the, the OIC that catamarans are not suitable, whereas catamarans are being used throughout the world and offer a much cheaper service. They can carry twice the number of vehicles at half the cost. And, yeah. uh, and it doesn't require significant alterations to any of the piers because of the same length as the existing boats. They're just mm -hmm. wider and they, the, uh, the link spine ramps, or rather the ramps on the boat itself, have to be adjusted to suit the existing link spans, but that's not a, a major thing. As a passenger, um, what's the difference being on the catamaran and being on the, the traditional ferry, the monohull? The motion is different. A monohull rolls and keeps on rolling because uh, you've got a pendulum effect. You don't get that with catamarans. Uh, they right. just lift. Yeah. You know, with the surface of the sea. Well, okay, there's a small one hull go down slightly in the other one, but it, it spread over a wider it spread over a wider area. Yeah. And Mike and Georgie will be back with us again a little later. Meanwhile our other guest, Alf Baird, has been busy at Holyrood. Now we're going to the Holyrood Net Zero Committee, where Alf happens to have been one of the three experts on one of their evidence sessions. They ask more or less the same question as we've just asked the Orkney folk. What do they think that people on the islands need? There's been a lot of research on the needs of island groups around the world. Uh, and often top of the list is frequency, because frequency also gives you reliability of the system. Price tends to come down a bit lower. Frequency is the most important feature in most uh, studies of user needs. 
uh, and that gives reliability. And that can be achieved by faster speeds and also by more vessels per route, simpler vessels rather than opulent vessels that's been described for the CalMac type of ships. So I think that's important. On investment, uh, I think there's been enormous investment in ferries in Scotland. That's not the problem. The problem is it's spent very badly. <laughs> and partly uh, that's very much related to the very poor procurement process. It's a very restrictive procurement process. The specification of the ship is very, very tight. Lots of bidders are squeezed out of that procurement process, including in the recent bidding for the two vessels for the second two of the four for Isla, where only two bidders bid, but the second bidder was, was uh, rejected for spurious reasons. The other feature uh, I would add is, is that most of, a lot of my research in the last 30 years has been on catamarans around the world. And we have catamarans in Orkney now, we're on the second ones. These have replaced CalMac monohulls that originally started the services in Orkney. And we've tried to get these ferries widely used within Scotland. And both, well, all of us were members of uh, Keith Brown's expert ferry group, which has since disbanded. And I certainly advocated catamarans should be deployed, at least on trial periods. And we, we were able to offer ministers and officials and, and ferry agencies catamarans, but they always refused to buy them. Now, CalMac and CMAL have always refused to use catamarans. It so happens, I believe, this week they may well be chartering the, the Orkney ferry catamaran, the Pentalina. So after 15 years of rejecting catamarans, they might finally be using one because they are desperate to, for tonnage and ships are collapsing now. The issue with catamarans is they come in at one-third or between half and one-third the price of CalMac monohulls. They're half the time to build. They're much more efficient to run because of the lower displacement. I mean really the weight of the ship. The catamarans have half the power requirement of a monohull, so half the emissions. And if you're interested in net zero, the catamarans give you that. So half the price uh, or less, uh, half the emissions, and also the most stable a safe ferry platform you can possibly get. And this is the result of uh, Professor Vassalos' recent study at Strathclyde on these catamarans. Much more stable, no need for ballast tanks or stabilizers, gives you a good indication of that and a massive saving on price. The problem is CML do not include them in the tender process. The next voice you're going to hear is Roy Pedersen, who's another of the witnesses at the Net Zero Committee. What the islands, uh, island communities require is good connectivity, Alf put his finger on it, frequent reliable services, uh, preferably run in a, a cost-effective manner that uh, doesn't cost the, the, ta the Scottish taxpayer an arm and a leg, as, as it currently is. Um, worth pointing out, too, that there are 10 year-round vehicle ferry operators operating in, in Scottish waters. Most of them provide uh, a good, reliable and in many of them frequent service. Some of them are uh, exemplars of good practice and I would in that regard name especially Shetland Islands Council Internal Ferries, Pentland Ferries operating across the Pentland Firth and Western Ferries um, on the Clyde. Now, to help us learn all about ferries and particularly catamarans, Alf had kindly given us a presentation with pictures and slides. Now, obviously, we can't show that on the podcast, but I will put the link in the notes and you'll be able to see it on our YouTube channel. And I'm sure you were all going to be experts on catamarans by the end of this podcast. So there's two different sizes, mainly about 35 metre, 16 car capacity and 50 metre, the bigger vessels handling about 28 cars. If we compare these with catamarans, we can see that the smaller vessel, the 35-metre, 
length vessel can carry about 30 cars. That's about twice the capacity. And the same with the, the catamaran on the bigger length, 50 meter length of the catamaran is uh, a capacity of 50 cars. So the catamarans carry twice as many cars as the monohull for the same length of uh, ship. The reason for this is quite simply that the monohull has a much narrower deck and much wider side casings as well, which take up a lot more capacity and uh, give extra weight on the vessel. Quite a narrow deck uh, on the monohulls, and that's the explanation, the main explanation why they don't carry many cars. Whereas the catamaran with a much wider platform on two hulls uh, carries six or seven uh, vehicles wide and twice the capacity. The average age of the current fleet is about 31 years, average speed 12 knots. A move towards similar length catamarans would, would almost double the car capacity to 240, would increase the passenger capacity by 30% to over 1,000, and would also increase the speed from 12 to about 14 knots. So there's a big environmental advantage to move towards catamarans. If we look at costs, if we were replacing six vessels, uh, three 35-meter monohulls and three 50-meter monohulls, for a like-for-like -like, uh, replacement, the cost of the monohulls would be what, about £108 million. Uh, that's a car capacity of about 132 cars, so it's a cost per car space of almost a million pounds. The catamarans, if we were replacing uh, the fleet with catamarans, three 35-meter vessels and three 50-meter boats, the catamarans are considerably cheaper than the monohulls, about half the price, £60 million for the six vessels. This is a price obtained from a catamaran designer and builder in Asia. These vessels would provide almost twice as many car spaces, 240 in total, and that gives you a cost, a capital cost per car space on the ships of £250,000. So it's about a third of the, what the monohulls are per car space. So a big benefit in terms of capital cost as well as carrying capacity. Whatever vessels decided, monohulls or catamarans, a range of uh, tailored designs for uh, ramps can be introduced for these using the existing infrastructure to best effect as well. Catamarans have also been designed for high sea state operations with higher bow, high higher tunnel arrangements and also uh, visor arrangements to stop water flowing in. So catamarans can be built and have been built for these kind of sea conditions, including the outer, outer isles operations. As we can see from the experience of Pentelina, which is a 60-meter vessel, and the Alfred, the new one, 98-meter. Just a, a couple of points here on uh, reliability. It's often been said in the past, particularly by those advocating monohulls, that there's a question about the reliability of catamarans. But the, I think the Orkney experience with Pentland Ferries has proved beyond doubt that the catamaran can hold its own in the roughest sea conditions of the Pentland Firth. On several days during the storms, Kiara and Dennis, when Pentland Ferries Alfred sailed, but the, the larger uh, monohull did not sail. Research on this, which I've been involved in in the past, has shown that the monohull suffers uh, largely because of higher windage, higher deck area, so it suffers from the windage problem. The catamaran has a benefit in having four engines and four propellers, so is able to turn in a much more confined harbour area as well. So it tends to be a more reliable option. The issue isn't sailing at sea that's necessarily the problem, it's berthing in port. And the catamaran is more than able to hold its own in berthing in any conditions the monohull has to contend with. 
Did you get all that? We invited Alf into our virtual studio to tell us more. That seems to be quite a compelling case for catamarans. We know that last week you were actually at the, the Hollywood Select Committee. Do you think there's any chance that they are listening? Yeah, I think I think they are. Keith Brown, about a decade ago, set up the Expert Ferry Group uh, so that we, we could try to uh, get some sense into ferries policy amongst the officials and the agencies that deliver ferry uh, policy and procurement uh, so that um, ministers didn't have to apologise continually in the parliament for the mistakes that were being made. But this goes back to the 90s as well. We've had these horrendous mistakes. It, it all comes in from the initial specification that CalMac and CMAL seem to have, which ends up with a prototype monohull of their own design and, and specification. It's a kind of prescribed process, uh, which is totally different from many other ferry services globally that I've been involved in, in studying and researching and, and, and presenting on. I think it's a cultural problem that we face. It's an embedded, almost a kind of arrogance. We designed this vessel and that's it. And you're getting, that's all you're getting, Islanders. <laughs> and, and, and you can take it or leave it. What's the kind of size of the, the ferry fleet in Scotland? I mean, were we talking hundreds or? Well, it's actually very underdeveloped. We, we, we have around 100 ferries between the Western Isles and the Northern Isles. The Western Isles, there's 30 on CalMac, but there's also private operators like Western Ferries. There's a couple of ferries for Argyll and Butte. And then in Orkney and Shetland, Orkney and Shetland Ferries, there's internal ferries. There's about 20 ferries there. And then you've got the Northlink bundle that runs from Aberdeen up to Orkney and Shetland. So there's, there's not, then you've got things like the Corran Ferry, the Cromarty Ferry. So there's little ferries. Uh, we, we actually have an underdeveloped system. We have about less than 100 ferries. Norway has well over 300, probably 400 now. What we have is a, an underdeveloped system. I would say we probably need double the ferries that we have because we, we're, not, uh, we're, not high, we're not able to provide the required frequency for island communities that they need. Frequency mm. is the key driver of demand and economic growth on the islands. And for that, you need more vessels, a more frequent service, a bit like treating it like a bus or a train service. Uh, and that's how the Norwegians run it. And the fact they have their tender process enables uh, innovative, uh, integrated trans-European operators to, to, to uh, transport companies to bid, like Veolia and even Stagecoach and others can bid for these kind of services because these companies are running buses, trains and ferries yeah. and yeah. they can integrate the whole thing. Whereas um, we, uh, well, the Scottish government has maintained this monopoly position that it has to be CalMax fleet, CMAL provide the fleet, uh, and, and really, the private integrated operators never bid for this service. The only company that bids to operate CalMac is, is or Northlink is Circle. Uh, and because yeah. they, operate, they operate state owned assets, whether mm, it's yes. a ferry or a prison or whatever, they operate, that's what they do. They're not a transport provider. They're not, certainly not an integrated transport provider. Yeah. So, what we could have had is, is the, the, the pan European transport integrated groups uh, coming in and bidding. And what they do is they provide the vessels. Just like they provide buses and maybe trains as well in some markets, they provide the ferries and they invest in them. In a sense, we don't really need government to do all this. Uh, government doesn't need to buy ferries. It's not very good at doing it. <laughs> it its cost overruns are enormous and its, it's uh, efficiency on the ferries is always problematic because that, that specification for the ferry comes deep, from deep within the bowels of CalMac. 
And that really is within the, I suppose it's put together by senior uh, shipping people within the RMT and Nautilus trade unions. And that's who develops it. I've yeah. likened it before, like, like for example, uh, like, I mean, crews and, and ferries and everything do a great job and everything, but you don't necessarily ask them to design a ferry. Just like you don't ask a train driver to design a train or a pilot to design an aircraft yeah. or a bus driver yeah. to design a bus. It, it requires a multidisciplinary approach to look at economies of scale, efficiency, global knowledge about how ferries can, can provide the best service and so on. So what you have in, in, uh, in this system in Scotland is basically the, 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 the people that work on the boat developing the spec. As how they see fit, and which isn't necessarily in the the user's interest. It's more in the suppliers, the providers' interest. Yeah. It's an interesting point that came up, I think, during your your Hollywood visit. Why would you want full catering on a boat that's going the journey of an hour when you yeah. can sit on a train up to? I think Inverness was the example given for over three hours, and you're not going to even get a cup of coffee. I didn't think that was a terribly good comparison since actually whenever I've sat on a train up to Inverness, you know, I've been dying for a cup of coffee, actually. Right. But I mean, I mean, my, you know, my experience of using the, the ferries over in the Western Isles and, and last year I was in Orkney and Shetland for a holiday. So I'm, I'm experiencing them as a holiday maker. Mm. And from that point of view, I think they're brilliant. I mean, I know, yeah. of course, I know they break down, so that's not so good. And then, you know, it's a, a, a gale or something and, and they get cancelled. But there was one year I got myself to Barra, to Castle Bay, and then did I had a day when I started off at nine o'clock in the morning. Of course, I've got a bus pass. The bus up to the first ferry and then a ferry over. And the ferries and the buses are all just, there's a bus waiting once you get over to Eriske and then that takes you a bit further up and everyone's chatting away, you know, so it's, it's all very kind of uh, pleasant. And I mean, by five o'clock, I was getting picked up by a friend in Stornoway, having had a completely uninterrupted, gorgeous day. When you're a tourist, though, it's a different mindset, it's a different experience, yeah. and it's a different world. If you're commuting and you're relying on it to get home that night, you know, I think they're very different. Over in the Western Isles, there's really only, I mean, all the main ferries are coming in over the inch. They come, they're, they're, so it's a bigger ferry, it's a bigger boat. The two mm -hmm. small ones are the ones that go from Barra up to Eriske and then from over the sound of uh, Harris over to... And you're right, of course, it's, it's, completely, it's completely different if you're just there for, as a holidaymaker and you don't even mind if it's late, you know. We don't have enough ferries. We don't have uh, really very efficient ferries. We, the, the system is, is underdeveloped, so uh, the frequency is quite poor. There needs to be a, probably a completely new look at the whole of Scottish ferry <laughs> sector. And uh, the problem we have is, is the Transport Scotland provides this long-term ferries plan that puts in place an idea that ferries will be replaced at a given time, but they never are met. These objectives are never met. They're just aspirations. Uh, and it's part of the problem is they're selecting, they're specifying ferries that are too expensive, too big, too heavy, and too uh, fuel-consuming and too labour-intensive as mm -hmm. well. So it means they can only buy a few. They can't buy enough. And yeah. Norway's replaced, I think, about 200 ferries in the last 20-odd years, and we, we're struggling to replace a handful. Yeah. <laughs> and if they replace them with catamarans, is that, would that make a big difference? To well, they have a specific design of fjord ferry that's slightly different from Scotland because most of the, fjord, the fjords are relatively enclosed. 
Yeah. Uh, they have a low wave height, yeah. and they support them with what they call high-speed catamarans. That's mm. small passenger vessels that go quite high speed. So every fjord really has that kind of network. Uh, what, uh, what, what I've advocated is, is a, a move towards catamarans as, as we've operated here in Orkney now for, for more than, well, getting on for 15, 15 years or more. We're on to the second catamaran at Pentland Ferries. And, yeah. and these, were, these were purchased at about a third the price of a, a Calmac ship. So for one of these, you, you can, for one Calmac ship, you can get three catamarans. And they operate, they've operated really well during the winter. They're, they're designed for high sea states in Scotland. They're designed by a Scotsman in Brisbane that's built, that's built uh, I think, probably about 100 of these medium-speed catamarans for uh, services around the world. He's got his catamarans all over the world, the Caribbean, in the Netherlands, Middle East, Asia, different places, even yeah. in Africa, yeah. and now in Scotland. And he's, he's tried for many, many years to get CalMac to take them. But it's just a cultural barrier. They specify their own monohulls. The, the problem is, the issue is I, I, I put into my presentation on the Orkney replacement programme is that the catamaran is, is wider than a monohull. It takes twice yeah. as many cars for a given metres in length. It has a shallower draft uh, and a, a, sh a shorter length. So therefore it can fit a lot of the existing piers no problem without big modernisation. You see, the problem with CalMac and CMAL's development plan is they want bigger <laughs> monohulls. And every time they do that, they cost, uh, they cost an enormous amount of extra in port infrastructure. For the new vessels that were supposed to go on Aran service, they had to, they had to rebuild practically Brodick uh, and mm -hmm. Ardrossan. Now there's over a hundred million pounds put the two together. Then you've yeah. got the Uig yeah. Triangle, uh, Uig Lochmadi Tarbert, three yeah. ports, probably yeah. another hundred million pounds. These are mm. enormous sums in ports that you don't really need. So the, as I say, the catamaran has a draft, uh, that's a depth under the water, which is one third less than the monohull. So can access most of the piers. Uh, and the pier modifications are much, much less expensive. The, one of the big advantage of the catamaran is, is that you, yeah, you can carry twice the, the volume of cars in a given length, but for the same power as the monohull, yeah. which carries mm -hmm. half. Yeah. So you have a tremendous advantage on lower emissions, lower costs, and these things operate really reliably like we have proved in Orkney. <laughs> mm -hmm. The great news this week actually is, is that the Pentalina, Pentland Ferry's uh, second vessel, which was replaced by the bigger Alfred, carrying 100 cars, Pentalina carries about 75, about the same as Finlagen that goes to uh, Isla. And, and uh, Pentalina has been, I think it's been chartered by Calmac. She's, she's in, she was in uh, Greenock Dry Dock this week, and I think that was for her uh, MCA survey and maybe some finishing off work. And I think she will be operational in the Calmac network within a few days. Having one that works, that, that, that disproves all their fears, is, is all you need to open the door. Yeah, well, the was, it, it did berthing trials in Arran, Isla, Mull, Oban a couple of years ago, but uh, they, I, think, I think RMT got involved and gave uh, the operator some bad publicity, calling them, uh, I don't know, pirates and buccaneers and all the rest of it. Uh, just because Pentland Ferries are, don't have a, a strong union connection. They're a private company that likes to do its own thing. Uh, but uh, that's not the same issue as the, 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 the ship's suitability. Working practices, I think, have to be a separate yeah. issue. 
Yeah. Uh, Scottish budgets aren't limitless. You know, we yeah. were spending billions on ferries. Calmac, when it was started, was supposed to be almost profit profit making back in the 1970s mm -hmm. and 80s. But now almost 80% of his income is from subsidy. Yeah, public yeah. service. Go and explain a little bit for me. There's a ferry cycle and you said that they're they buy them at the most expensive point in the cycle. How does that cycle work? Well, it's the shipbuilding cycle, oh, right, uh, which, gotcha. which is well known in shipping and maritime economics. Is, uh, is, is shipbuilding cycle is the global shipbuilding market rises, increases with demand, obviously, and then it reaches a, a peak and then it falls, usually through some shock or some other event or, or some other aspects that... Uh, but it usually falls quite dramatically. So the, the, the astute ship owner will always try to avoid buying his ships at the peak. <laughs> what yeah. happens with the Scottish government is it allocates its, recently it allocated its 580 million pound budget for ferries and ports and off Seaval tondered into the ferry market, wandered into the ferry, the global ferry market, just at the peak. 2023, this year, the expectation because of the global a recession because of other global events, uh, shipyards will gradually become a little bit quieter, uh, mm. probably quite a bit quieter. Uh, the, the, we've passed the peak in other sectors. You see container shipping, cruise shipping, other aspects where, which keep shipyards busy. Yeah. Uh, so, so all these aspects, tankers, bulk carriers, all, all these markets are, are falling a bit. So shipyard capacity will increase in the next year or two, and that's really the time to buy is... Yeah. Probably later this year, maybe even in the next quarter. Yeah. In fact. What is the business relationship, financial relationship between ScotGov and, and and the Orkney Council? Because the internal ferries up in Orkney, they are up in Orkney. They they're run by the council, aren't they? And yes, they're a, they're a, well, it's a company, but it's owned by the council, yeah. connected yeah. to the harbours department. The port yeah. authority in Orkney is part of the council, yeah. as it is in Shetland. So they have a lot of skills and expertise in maritime transport. And I think yes. this is what we discussed the last time is on ports, they've been able to, to, to gather some of the income from the oil transport, the taxes levied on tankers, if you like, whereas on the 4th and Clyde, the private port operators have extracted all that revenue, whereas mm -hmm. Orton and Shetland have been able to build yeah. up their, their wealth funds from the oil sector, mainly through taxes levied on tankers. But yeah, they, it's a pretty much an accident of history. They, they, they own and operate the ferries within the island group. It's never been run by central government. Uh, yeah. It's never been run by, I think, by a CalMAC type of entity. So that's what's done here. So therefore, it leaves a challenge for the council to invest in that fleet. And the fleet mm -hmm. here is perhaps even more aged than Calmac's yeah. yeah, I noticed that, actually, when it, it was It really on does it. need replaced pretty yeah. badly. It is that the kind of thing that the Scottish Investment Bank could do? The Scottish Investment Bank is very limited. It should be doing that, but it has mm -hmm. limited funds in the Scottish Investment Bank uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and seems to be geared towards other kind of quaint investment projects with people that are, are well-connected, if you know what I mean. It's not really geared towards public sector necessarily as a Scottish National yeah. Investment Bank should yeah. be. Yeah. The, the funding issue is important here because the, I think the revenue from internal ferries might be about, say, 12 to 14 million, but the revenue is only about two or three or four million. So there's a funding gap of about, I think, about 10 million a year. And that's just for operating. It's not for, not for replacing the fleet. 
So there's a, a, a constant operating gap, which Scott, uh, Orkney Council gets some funding from central government, I think about yeah. 7 million, and yeah. then they have to take money from their own internal funds to support the rest. But the problem is the capital for replacing the fleet. Uh, all I can say is that, I, well, the council go back and forward to Edinburgh quite often trying to get John Swinney or whoever, or Kate Forbes to agree to, co to help fund or to fund entirely the, the fleet replacement. And they've estimated that at about 400 million. 200 million on about 10 ships and 200 million on port infrastructure. Now, that's an enormous sum. Yeah. Uh, my estimates yeah. before for catamarans would be half the figure. Half the figures would be catamarans, uh, and you could replace the entire fleet, and they would operate more efficiently as well and provide a lot more capacity. Catamarans, like the Pentalina, like the Alfred that Pentland Ferries have, on smaller levels, proven boats could uh, reduce the cost of investment in new ships by half and also provide a, an increase in capacity, about 50%, uh, mm. on car capacity. And that's what really is a big constraint on the development of all the, the little islands in Orkney. Yeah. And yeah. as well. If we were to look at funding, this is just an indicative uh, idea of funding with relatively high interest rate. So the loan, 100% loan of £60 million for the catamarans taken over 25 years would result in an, um, an annual repayment of £3.8 million. The similar loan for replacement of monohulls would be about £7 million, so almost double uh, the capital cost based on a 25-year loan, which government has been able to do for CalMac. If we were looking at a ship lease from uh, the builders and the operators, a ship lease over 15 years, again, fairly high interest rate here, just as an idea, the annual repayment for the monohulls at 108 million cost uh, would be about 9.6 million pounds per annum, whereas the catamarans would be about half this at 5 million pounds per annum. So all in all, the catamarans can be obtained for, for much less than the monohulls. This just gives some idea of what the, the options are for funding. Uh, obviously, a great option for Orkney would be 100% Scottish government funding if it was available. Uh, the other option here is 100% Orkney Islands Council funding. Uh, there is also the possibility here of joint funding between both. There is a combination of, of possibility of grants and loans, which might reduce the annual figure down quite a lot. There's also possibility of a contribution from the OIC Oil Wealth Fund. We also have in Scotland the new Scottish National Investment Bank, which is tasked with making investments in this kind of infrastructure. And a final option is always where public services are tendered anyway, is for a private operator to come in and operate the service. But the services within Orkney, are, there's no plan to tender them. What other options are there? We go back to Roy Peterson in Holyrood. And the way it works in Norway is small bundles. There are four or so large ferry operators who bid for these bundles. So a bundle will be a single route or a, or a, or a group of routes. Uh, and the operator brings their own ship to the, to the show. The Norwegian government doesn't take anything to do with building ships, build, building or designing ferries. It's the operators that provide their own ferries. There is a, a mantra within... Uh, I guess the Scottish Government of no debundling. That's a, a, a mistake. Uh, I, I think the, the, the future has to be small bundles, and uh, there's one community, namely Mullen Iona, uh, who are 
interested in the possibility of taking over their ferry service as a community venture, which is, fits in exactly with the Scottish Government's Islands Act, um, empowering local communities, just absolutely a, a spot on in that regard. Yet, as things stand at the moment, there, is, there seems to be great resistance to that possibility. Now, if it caught on in Mull, it could catch on in other places. I think Arran might be a, another contender for that, and I guess at some other places. You said in the Caledonian Inquirer just in, in December that, quote, if you tendered and debundled, you would get the private sector coming in and operating services in corridors and different routes, but still regulated by a transport authority as they do in Norway. Now, the other side of this, I've heard concerns that... Um, what people who call for this are really calling for is for companies like Serco and P&O, who are not as generous with no. wages and conditions, to come no. in and bid for profitable lifeline yes. routes. Is that what you no, would No, I think what, what has to happen is, is the, the integrated transport providers across Europe are not the Cercos necessarily, or the, the P&Os even, of this world. Mm -hmm. uh, companies like Veolia and others that were interested in bidding for Scottish routes on a debundling basis, and Stagecoach as well, to some extent, uh, are integrated transport providers who operated bus trains and ferries. So they just look at them as a transport vehicle. And that's what we have to look on ferries, it's just a another bus, another train, uh, rather than something unique that has to be managed separately. Yeah. And uh, having it as part of an integrated transport thing can be done. But like I say, you, you could still have a, a central government run operation as long as it's run efficiently. And meanwhile, back on Orkney, Georgie and Mike have some ideas of their own. You'll be aware that Orkney is a very, uh, very keen on renewables and, and very concerned about climate change and so on. So it's not just a matter of getting a, a new ferry. We also want ferries that are ideally net zero and, and run on either a battery or hydrogen or something of that yeah. kind that doesn't yeah. uh, cause any pollution. Mm. And that's a, that adds another uh, layer to the challenges that are involved. Although, from what I can gather, um, if you choose the right... Um, sort of powertrain, then you, you can um, sort of hedge your bets, as it were. So even if you have to start off with something that isn't quite what, you know, an ideal completely net zero, you will in the future be able to replace it with something that is. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that will that will come about as a result of, the, of this task force in Edinburgh too. So there's always going to be a limitary, a persuasion point of view, persuading yeah. the main population yeah. of Scotland that uh, the islands are worth spending that amount of money on. But yeah. if the taxpayer the magic taxpayer doesn't have to pay the damn bill, um, we can remove that for the mm -hmm. equation. So um, there's enough ferries required to keep two or three shipyards operating if full-time, all the time, forever. And that, that's, a, you know, there's employment that goes with that. Yeah. All uh, sorts so of at, least two, at, least, at least two shipyards, I would say, out of the size. Mm -hmm. of, because we've only got one operating shipyard and, well, they, they have a kind of shipyard at precise, but it's more, it's an assembly yard as opposed to a shipyard. Yeah. They've yeah. got a big dry dock and you can have a big dirt of concrete and you just put modules together and then you float them off. Uh, so Brilliant. we've got the capacity there. You then just need to take in the technology and the people to make it work. I think the government needs to own that yard or whatever other yard we're talking about. I think you made a good point. Orkney's needs for ferries going into the future could keep, you know, it might be a smallish shipbuilding yard going, but could basically keep it going into the, into no, the future. I, I, I was meaning the whole Scottish ferries fleet. All right, okay. 
what struck me when you said that was, you know, and then you'd also sort of said, well, you could persuade the rest of Scotland, you know, the, the Orkney and the Western Isles that that's, need that's all these ferries. But actually, if, if that if that shipbuilding yard is in, say it's on the Clyde or it might be on over at Ross Ice on the phone, that's that's a good argument, isn't it? It's kind of like, of here you go. Is, yeah. We, 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 there's jobs there, there's apprenticeship, there's good jobs, there's decent wages, it will feed into yeah. the local economy and it will keep all you guys going with decent boats. Do you know what I'd like yeah. them to do this? You could, I think you could be a little bit more imaginative when it comes to, like, take the Scotwind auction. If one of the conditions of being part of that was, oh, and we want you to adopt a ferry or we want you to provide the equivalent of a ferry as part of the contract, you know, you could kind of tie it onto something else. It's probably not going to happen this side of independence because you have to fight it through Westminster to get that. Mm -hmm. Another aspect that would come with independence, one of the mainstays for that, from my point of view, is the well-being economy. Yeah. And what that says is it's not just about saying this is cost effective. It's about saying, is this a good idea for the people that live in that area? So um, this, this would apply to lifeline services such as these ferries mm. and making sure that people who live in remote regions have the proper infrastructure that they can get employment mm. and, and live a reasonable life. But we also want new ferries to be as sustainable as and mm. low zero carbon if possible, but low, as low carbon as it can be. So, I, I mean, I came across, it was just a wee video about, an, it's an electric ferry that runs in Denmark between some of their yeah. islands. You know, I think it can do a 90 kilometre round trip on one charge. That would do for some of that. I don't know if it would do to get up to North Orleansey, but it would certainly do for a lot of the wee, uh, the inner islands in, in Orkney. But yeah, that was that was really interesting when we saw that. I think it was called the Ellen, wasn't it? The, yes, that's right. And it, yeah, and it, it was the first time I think that they had proved the te the, the technology of a battery powered ferry able to run a regular service. Um, and I think, as you say, the the distances involved were certainly comparable with the distances to the ferries and to the North Isles do, obviously it's got to charge up and you've got to, an awful lot of energy has got to go into the boat while it's, while it's being charged up. And one of the difficulties we have here is the poor grid, the grid's um, set up here. It's being improved. We've got a new, a big new substation going in and, and we are trying very hard to get a, a new interconnector between us and the, uh, and the mainland, which yeah. may be necessary in order to do this. But again, with a net zero view, that the cruise ships that come here, when we get hundreds of those a year, and uh, that they could be obliged to uh, take shore power when they're in, until somebody realised that the shore power to one of these vessels is probably more than the entire Orkney <laughs> demand. So, it, you know, you've got a problem with it, with the infrastructure there. But we work on that too. And there's a great deal of work going on to review all these things and make the case to Ofgem that we should have better interconnections and that we should be capable of. It all gets tied up in a, in a complete mix-up here, there, <laughs> It's not just a matter of an interconnector that can deliver power to Orkney, but also in doing that, we would be able to put up more wind turbines, gen generate more electricity locally and, uh, and ship it south when it's required. Uh, certainly the grid would probably have to be improved in order to support battery-powered vessels. And then on the other hand, you've got, you've got issues on the mainland with the grid not having the capacity for all the power that's in it. And really, your electric vehicles then become batteries that you can store power in overnight and, and, and help the grid. So uh, yeah, that, that's where you would be evening the power out so that you 
Uh, yes, because the peak demand, which happens around about tea time, you want to try and reduce that demand and get people to use more at other times. Fiona and I both run electric cars and um, yeah you know it could easily the battery on our car could easily be be, um, be you know be fitted except that there's infrastructure there to, to do it. Anyway that, that's, that's a whole other kind of topic. And so for our final section uh, back to Alf in the studio and we continue on that theme of just how good could the future be so moving us from ah uh, but ferries to ooh but ferries. The other aspect which I've proposed in, in working with uh, the designer of the catamarans and also people in, on the Clyde and Inch Green Dry Dock and so on is to develop shipbuilding capacity where we can build these vessels in yeah. Scotland. In my view, we have a need for 100 ferries. And this is for the, the Clyde, for the Western Isles, for Northern Orkney, Shetland, but also for the urban ferries I think we discussed before, yeah. for the Forth and the Clyde. We should have a Clyde River bus with a dozen we little should. ferries going up and down from Absolutely. Central. Yeah. Central Station, yeah. Dundee, Erskine and beyond. Uh, yeah. We should have fast ferries on Gurek Danoon, not these old clapped out <laughs> things that, that uh, Calmac bought, uh, or Seamal bought. Uh, we should have cross-four ferries running from Granton to Bird Island, as, as it used to run up until the 1950s, possibly also to Methyl. And that's what Pentland Ferries was wanting to do some years ago, and put two catamarans on that route, and that was blocked by... Uh, the fact that fourth ports that, that own the estuary, if you like, the, the private equity fund who Mrs. Thatcher and, and gave the, the, the ownership and regulation powers of the estuary, they wanted to tax every passenger fourth on the ferry. And that was at the same time as uh, government was taking off motor, uh, bridge tolls at the fourth bridge. So it, it, it left the ferry uncompetitive, plus five yeah. taxes wouldn't put in place any park and ride facilities at Burnt Island for it. So it needed to be an integrated solution. And it could have easily carried a million passengers a year. Uh, like many cities around the world have urban ferries. We don't because we've, yeah. never, bothered to, we've never bothered to do anything about it. Yeah, was, exactly. And I mean, and you know, you go, to, you, you go to a city like, um, one I'm thinking about is Hamburg on, you know, yeah. on the right. Yeah, Hamburg's got loads of one-man ferries. Absolutely. Amsterdam was the same. There's bits Absolutely. there. You go across the river and they're free. Ferries just go back and forward. Yeah. yeah. If you go to any yeah. city, really, Lisbon's got a great system. Sydney... Brisbane, New York, San Francisco, Seattle, uh, Vancouver, everywhere has got these. And they've also got bridges and tunnels, but you've got a balanced transport system with a ferry. Yeah. We could easily have half a dozen ferries on the 4th, yeah. a dozen on the Clyde, uh, running back and forward, uh, more ferries downriver, and, and then much more frequent services on places like Arran, Mull. Smart ticketing as well to join it up with the bus service and the train yeah. service. That would That's be fab. Sorry, I'm just, laugh I'm just laughing at that. I mean, I live in Glasgow. We've been trying to get smart ticketing between the buses and the trains for bloody donkey's years. Well, I live in Clackmannanshire, and see that thing you're saying about frequency, that yeah. applies equally to a rural bus service. I mean, our, our bus is every two hours and no service at all on a Sunday. Well, you know, now, you know the, river, the river is a great artery, and you could yeah. theoretically have vessels going, passenger vessels going yeah. to, to Bowness, up to Clackmannan. Mm -hmm up yeah. to Aloha. Aloha is accessible yeah. for, you can yeah. actually get a vessel up to Stirling. <laughs> and, for, and for tourism, what I found in my studies globally of fast ferry services in urban centres like Sydney, Parramatta and so on, is that the, half the riders, half the people that use them are tourists. You get a tremendous revenue from the tourism. Every new land development up a river, a university campus, a historic house, a housing estate, 
can be linked into the ferry network and yeah. that's how they did it in brisbane uh, and also in, in san francisco as well to some extent so all these things are possible but our institutions are culturally very rail oriented or road <laughs> I, I had a real problem on the Clyde when I was doing my Clyde River bus studies and I did two for, for Scottish Enterprise and Strathclyde Partnership. The, the city council, all they wanted to do was build low bridges on the Clyde. Stop the boats, exactly. Just destroy yeah. navigation, yeah. 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 They didn't think about the river as a transport artery. And yet you can imagine <laughs> thousands, millions of people traveling on the Clyde River bus and I estimated it would have become, I think it would have become the number four or five visitor attraction in Glasgow hundreds of thousands of people a year because yeah. as soon as people see a river bus or a waterfront they in a city that's what they want to do yeah, yeah. the thing that i find really frustrating i think is the fact that we've got this such a history of shipbuilding in scotland yeah. you know especially the clyde and yeah. the word ferries mm. is shorthand for and how crap is scotland Alistair Jack managed to shoehorn it into a debate about Section 35. Does he agree with me that rather than manufacturing constitutional battles, the SNP would be better focusing their energies on fixing the failures across Scotland, not least in health and education? <laughs> well, again, I don't want to bore everyone with a long list, but we could add ferries and many other things to that list. Which just shows you, you know, the currency it's become. Well, you know how I like it? I, I... I compare it to colonialism and a lot of my research around the world has been with the great ports around the world they're all former colonies <laughs> most of them many of them dubai malta singapore you name it even in australian ports but a lot of them are former colonies and the first thing they do on decolonization is develop their maritime infrastructure i never thought ah but ferry ah but ferries i never thought that but i have now gone as fiona if you've been saying i've gone oh ferries we could do this we could do that there are all sorts of possibilities so hope you've picked up on some of these uh, ideas as well it's exciting to hear the ideas from people who actually will make a difference to their lives as well but isn't it nice to be having a conversation about the possibilities and benefits of what we can do as an independent scotland it frees us up to do some of these things We've been stuck in discussions about process and a vote, but actually, let's not lose sight of the, the, the big prize here. It's to have a better Scotland that works better for all of us. Absolutely. Thank you very much for Geordie and Mike. We thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you up in Orkney. And also, as ever, great to have Professor Alf Baird in the studio with yeah. us. Hopefully we all know a bit more about ferries now than we did at the start of this episode. Join us again next week when our podcast will be the February Bits and Pieces Roundup. And there was me thinking I'd have nothing to put in this month. How wrong was I? You can find all our previous podcasts on our website, scottishindiepod.scot. And you can get video versions of a lot of the things we do on our YouTube channel, Scottish Independence Podcasts, IndiePod Extra. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye now.